Hi everyone, welcome to episode number 16 of the Jackson Hole Connection. My name is Stefan Abrams and I'm your host. I appreciate all of the feedback and ideas from all of you listeners. It has helped me develop the show each week. Thank you to Michael Morey, my editor, for all of your fantastic direction and help. Thank you to my marketing director, Tana Hoffman, who rocks. She spreads the word each week, informing folks of new episodes ready to be downloaded. And thank you to my music producer, Luke Taylor, for providing some awesome show tunes. This week on the Jackson Hole Connection, my guest is Dick Scarlett. Dick grew up on a ranch in Wyoming. He's a graduate of the University of Wyoming, a community leader, husband, father, and grandfather. Today, we will learn from Dick the power of the big C and how owning a bank was more important to be a community partner rather than just being a lending institution. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Dick, thank you so much for being here at the Jackson Hole Connection today. Tell the listeners a little bit about how you and your wife, Maggie, started off in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, Stefan, we were 15 years in the banking business in Denver, and uh, I was uh, president of the Cherry Creek National Bank. And in my career in Colorado, I was with the uh, uh, American National Bank downtown, which was one of the large banks in Colorado. And I was in correspondent banking, which means I traveled Montana, Wyoming, uh, northern Colorado, and would call on these country banks in these little communities. And there's usually two or three banks in every community. And I would get them to uh, open an account with the large city bank in Denver. And that was particularly important to the country banks, if I can call them that, because they cleared their their checks every day to a city bank trying to collect their out-of-town and out-of-state checks that customers would deposit in their banks. And that was called correspondent banking. In uh, times of uh, if they needed help making loans, buying or selling loans with the country banks for liquidity purposes, that's what I did. And the Jackson State Bank was one of a number of banks in Wyoming that I dealt with as a correspondent banker. Moved to Cherry Creek in the early 70s, and the uh, Jackson State Bank would call me and say, you know, we're not getting the same service from your replacement, the downtown bank, and we'd like to continue maybe buying and selling loans with you out at Cherry Creek. So that connection continued um, uh, except for check clearing. We didn't do that. One day in uh, 1980, I got a call from Felix Buckenroth that said he was going to sell the bank and he wanted to sell it to me. I was very excited because every young banker aspires to own his own bank. And this was years before all the branch banking has swept the United States. I got excited and got ready to come up to Jackson and started calling Felix back and and he wouldn't return my calls. 
Finally, I called him at home, and he uh, he said, you know, he had committed to sell it to the First National Bank and trust in Cheyenne. And uh, I was very disappointed and a little upset, but I didn't let my Irish temper show. <laughs> so I went away for a year. A year later, exactly April to April in 1981, I get another call from Felix. And he said, I want to sell you the bank. And I said, well, you already sold it a year ago. He said, they've never been able to put it together with the Federal Reserve. Hmm. And he said, so if you can do it, I'll sell it to you. Now, the bank was under a cease and desist order from the Federal Reserve and was going to be closed. I don't know whether you know that. No. And um, it had no liquidity, had bad loans, and it was going to be closed in six months. Ooh, under the, under the gun. I was under the gun. Uh, I met with the feds. I, I came up, met with Felix. I went through the bank personally, went through all the loans. Um, pretty sloppy operation, uh, not much detail. Felix was more of a public relations person than a banker, uh, but very popular in town. He gave out a lot of money to a lot of people that couldn't pay it back, and the bank uh, w was broke. I made a deal with Felix, and uh, I flew into Jackson on the first Frontier Airline jet plane to land into Jackson. That was a big deal. And when I got off the plane and there was a band playing, <laughs> I knew it wasn't for me. <laughs> but that's that was my arrival in Jackson. So rolled up our sleeves. Maggie and our kids did not come up till August. We had a home to get rid of in Denver and try to sell. But our, our son and daughter, Leslie, came up and spent a lot of time with me. We rented a condo with the Aspens. And they loved the small town. And I'd meet them almost every day for lunch at the Jackson Drug. And um, it, it took a couple of years. And we got the uh, cease and desist order released by the Federal Reserve. The bank, when we bought it, had hardly any capital at all, had no liquidity and was uh, 57 million in total assets. Through the years, until we uh, agreed to sell to Wells Fargo from 1981 until we closed the sale of the bank on June 30th, 2008, the bank grew from 57 million to a billion two in total assets. The second biggest bank in Wyoming it was in Casper, and it was $350 million in assets. Quite a difference. Wells Fargo had 20 branches in Wyoming, none in our market areas. And their 20 branches only totaled $800 million. Now, in 1981, when we bought the Jackson State Bank, it was two years later that the family that had run the Shoshone First National Bank in Cody for several generations called up and Sam Allen said, I'm going to uh, retire next June, I'll be 65. Our son is not interested in the banking business. Uh, would you be interested in buying our bank? And that was the largest bank in Cody, Park County. And I, I thought for a minute and I said, oh, absolutely. So embarked on raising some more money, both in Cody and from existing shareholders. And we bought 
the Shoshone First National Bank in Cody. I should back up and tell you that in buying the Jackson State Bank and Trust, I formed a holding company and we called it the United Band Corp, a corporation of Wyoming. That's okay. B-A-N-C-O-R-P-O-R-A-T-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. I formed that company in uh, 1971, sitting in Denver as an assistant vice president downtown Denver Bank. And I liked the name United. There was United Banks of Denver, of Colorado, and I liked it. And I knew I always wanted to come back to Wyoming. So I got an attorney friend, and I said, I want to file a name in Wyoming for a bank holding company, because someday I'm going back. And it was called, I, I filed it as United Banks of Wyoming. And the state of Wyoming Secretary of State and the laws would not allow you to use the word, the name banks, if you weren't a bank. Hmm. So we changed it to Band Corporation, and that's how the name got it. Well, the United Band Corporation was the actual purchaser of the Jackson State Bank, and then a couple years later, the Shoshone First National. It was 10 years later, we uh, got a call from uh, a banker in Sheridan who said he was uh, wanted to sell his bank, and would I be interested? Well, I always loved Sheridan and really thought I was going to leave Denver and move to Sheridan before I ended up in Jackson. Mm -hmm. And it just happens that that banker's name was Joe Lyman, and his brother was Dr. Dennis Lyman, the dentist here in Jackson. Interesting connection. Yeah. Very interesting. So went over, looked at the bank, and um, we did make arrangements finally. We did our due diligence and all of that. And we bought that. It was the smallest bank in Sheridan. We operated that for, gosh, about 10 years. And one day, in walks into my office in Jackson, walks uh, Vernon Delgado, who is owns the bank, First National Bank in Pinedale. And he said, uh, I'm 76. I started this bank in Pinedale in 1965 or 1964. I'm getting tired and I want to sell it and I like the way you run your bank and I've got somebody else here in Jackson who keeps call- bugging me and wants to buy my bank and I don't want to sell it to him. <laughs> no names disclosed. Sure. And he said, I want to sell it to you. And I said, wow, well, what do you want for their bank? And he told me and I said, well, let me come down and take a look. So I took a crew down there and brought my accountants and, uh, from Denver, and we went through the bank. And Pinedale was you know, going through the gas. I mean, it was a lot going on down there. And so I ended up buying Vernon's bank for the price he asked. At the same time, I was trying to charter a bank in eastern Idaho in Driggs. And that bank was called, we filed it, and it took me about a year. We called it the United Bank of Idaho. Mm -hmm. So I think that's five banks. Uh, Each one uh, was separately named, but the the stock was owned by United Band Corporation. And then my shareholders owned shares in United Band Corporation. We got our charter in Idaho. We closed on Pinedale. Our banks grew. We were 
very highly rated by the Federal Reserve, all the examiners. We were top rated in everything and uh, very profitable. And every couple of years, Wells Fargo kept trying to buy me since the uh, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I've got letters in my here in my drawer <laughs> that I can show you from uh, John Stump when he was the executive vice president of Wells Fargo saying, just sign here. Here's what we'll pay you for your bank. It's a letter of intent. And I would send him back, a, or I'd call him and say, John, we're not for sale. And if we were, you're not even in the ballpark of what we'd ask. Well, that was a every several-year event. And um, uh, we worked hard in getting good bankers in each bank. Our staffs were our uh, signature. And the banks all took off. They grew well. The Jackson State Bank that had started at uh, 57 million in in assets. Uh, when we did sell to Wells Fargo, we signed that agreement the end of November of uh, 07, 2007. The assets of the Jackson State Bank were a billion two. Second biggest bank I think I mentioned was 350 million in Casper. Mm-hmm. The holding company, when you consolidated all the banks was a billion uh, six. Wells Fargo's 20 banks in Wyoming only totaled 800 million or were half our size. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of the reasons they were very interested in us. Plus, we were in Sheridan, Cody, Jackson, Pinedale, and the, the wealth, the family wealth in these most of these areas is substantial, conservative, old wealth. That's a fantastic background, and it certainly offers a testament to your character when not only just Felix came to you to offer you to buy his bank, but so many other people who started their banks from the roots, from the ground up, they saw how you operated and appreciated how you operated and knew you would take care of their customers in the same fashion, if not better, and that's what they wanted. They wanted you. And, and that says a lot. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Now, I, I should tell you that George McKinley, who owned the uh, First National Bank in Evanston, who was a longtime friend, and I used to finance him out of Denver when he was in the banking business in Aspen and, and Grand Junction, he moved up here and bought the First National of Evanston and branched it into Kemmer and Pinedale. When he aged out and needed to sell, uh, he got a hold of me, and we were very dear friends. And uh, that was just not the type of market that fit in with our little plan here. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to stay around Yellowstone Park. Uh, the Federal Reserve tried to get us to take over the uh, Stockman's Bank in Gillette, which was the biggest bank in Gillette, and had failed a couple years later after the Jackson State was in trouble. I, I turned that down. They had me come to Denver and meet with them and say, would you buy this one too? And I, it, I just, it didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And then the American National Bank uh, in Rock Springs came available, but that didn't fit. We just didn't, wasn't a natural fit for us. And so, so we turned down opportunities to buy other banks. We just didn't buy a bank because it was for sale. That sounds like a great vision. You had a course, a path that you knew that you wanted to stick to. What allowed you to to see what path you wanted to follow to turn down those other banks? My my vision was 
I wanted to be in a community that was, uh, it was a county seat, had a air, commercial airport, and uh, I thought those were very important to the growth and development of the communities. While Rock Springs had a commercial airport uh, some of the time, or most of the time, it just didn't have the same character as Jackson or Cody or Sheridan. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was trying to maintain. Uh, when we bought the Jackson State Bank and, and even carried that forth to all our banks, there were no more khakis and golf shirts for the officers, women or men. They had to wear slacks and I, I kind of called it the uh, Chase Manhattan look or Brooks Brothers look. I wanted gray slacks, blue blazers, white shirt and tie. And uh, because people coming to the West from the East Coast or maybe from the West Coast, when they came in here and were looking to open an account with a bank, they had an image of what their banker looked like in New York and or the, or the West Coast. Because in those days, everybody wore suits and in the banking business. I said, no suits, but you have to wear... Uh, slacks, and I prefer blue blazers and uh, and a tie, mm-hmm. and I that was that stuck, and that's what our our people did, and we built a pride in our appearance. There were no golf shirts, no uh, washing wears. Good for you. Good for you. Stepping back just a little bit, you and your wife Maggie are both from Wyoming. Tell me about the roots of your family in Wyoming. Uh, Maggie is, comes from a long lineage of uh, pioneers, came out of Utah to Matitsi, Wyoming, ranching. And uh, I was actually, uh, we're a Philadelphia family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born in Philly, moved out uh, after World War II ended. My dad was in World War II for almost five years. Four, four, four and a half of that was in Germany, France, and England. My grandfather owned a ranch. Uh, out on the Sweetwater, near where Jeffrey City is today. Okay. We moved from Philadelphia to the ranch on the Sweetwater, log cabins, dirt roofs, and a pump in two cabins, and uh, coal stoves, wood stoves. My mother came off the main line of Philadelphia. She was from Bin Mar. And uh, we, we had a home in Lander so we could go to school, but we were six, about 60 miles from town. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that's how I uh, I moved out here when I was uh, I, I started the uh, third grade I think it was eighth grade eight, eight years old never looked back and Wyomingite ever since I yeah I love it and my dad loved it he said when he got out of the service the East Coast was nothing but a zoo this was in 1945-46 and uh, he became a rancher and took over my grandfather had a ranch with a form and running it on the Sweetwater and the foreman and his family moved out and we moved on and never looked back spectacular and then yeah. you graduated high school and went to the university of wyoming right went to wyoming on a basketball scholarship uh then uh, I, I served two years out of high school went to the university for two years got called back under the berlin crisis and had to go serve another year in the army mm-hmm. and then came back and finished my junior and senior year and took a job with general motors uh, upon graduation, and uh, my dad wanted to know if uh, I could stay and help put the hay and get the summer work done on the ranch because labor was a problem to find, and he was having some health problems. And General Motors said, uh, "Okay, you know, the next training class will be in uh, in November." 
This was the Chevrolet division. And so I worked all summer on the ranch and we got all the work done. And towards the end of September, the uh, local bank president owner called me up and said, we'd like to hire you. And uh, long story short, I finally agreed to try it for a month, but I was going to go with General Motors. And he said, well, just try it. I was there two weeks and called General Motors and said, uh, forget it. I'm going to stay in the banking business. I was there not quite three years, and the downtown Denver Bank called the president of the Lander Bank and said, we want to hire Scarlet in to downtown bank. And so <clears throat> I went down, interviewed, and just got married about that time. And we decided we would try it. We'd give it five years. And I was the number two person in, the, uh, in operations and personnel for the fifth biggest bank in Colorado. I was 27, 28. About six months later, they moved me to correspondent banking. And a couple of years later, I was in charge of correspondent banking. And then about three years, four years later, I was president of the Cherry Creek National Bank. And now we know the rest of the history. Yeah, you know the rest of the story. And that's the rest of the story. Yeah. When you and Maggie came to look at Jackson State Bank to, to make a purchase and to move your family here, what was Jackson like in 1981 when you were looking at moving your family here? It was uh, economically very slow. You know, interest rates uh, had gone over 21 percent. They were they were dropped down to 18 percent when I moved here, and I borrowed some money to, and I forecasted to my shareholders 18 percent or 15 percent prime rate for 12 years. I could show how I could pay back my my. $2 million bank loan that I was borrowing from Denver. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used 15% for 12 years. Didn't know that Prime would drop below that. <laughs> it was 18% yeah. at the time. And I would tell people, if if mortgage interest rates drop below 10%, you grab it. If you get to 9%, you grab it and lock it in for 30 years. That was how wise I was. <laughs> but that was in 1981 when, you know, mortgage rates were 13 12, 13%. Mm-hmm. And we moved here. Things were very slow. Uh, the bank, you, you know, there was no liquidity in the bank and they had a lot of bad loans because of the economy. We got in there and uh, started making changes, what we thought would make it a, a real bank. I uh, went to several people and said, you know, we got to get the carpenters hammering and the uh, excavators excavating. And I uh, got Bucky Oliver from the Oliver family who one of their hay fields, alfalfa fields, was Cottonwood Park. Hmm. And uh, they owned that whole, all that land down there were dairy subdivision and Three Creek mm-hmm. is. That was all their ranch. And uh, I got Bucky and he thought it was a good idea. And uh, we plowed up his, his uh, hay field and started building houses. And the bank was putting all the money in because he owned the land, so he didn't have to acquire it. Most developers have to acquire the land and then build houses. So they were called acquisition and development loans. In this case, they owned the land, so it was just a development loan. And we had a first mortgage on all the land. That's how we got Cottonwood started and people working. Mm -hmm. Those houses were selling for... Ninety-eight to one hundred and twenty thousand a piece. Got a hold of Art Brown, who was a local developer who created the Aspens, and uh, 
he's the one that started Teton Pines. And we put the money under him. That was a half a million dollar loan to acquire from Blake Vanderwater the, the land and from Skip Ray Clark the land which is now Teton Pines. And as collateral, I took second mortgages on all the buildings in the Aspens, the Aspens Market and the Athletic Club and all those buildings, commercial buildings, were owned by Art. And the bank had first mortgages on them, but they were years old, very, very seasoned. Mm -hmm. So we had collateral behind all our loans. Plus, I had all the land, and that's we started Teton Pines, and and uh, back in those days, that's got people working again. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were a lot of other things that happened, but uh, uh, those were those were big events. So having the bank, part of what you did was help this community grow and become vibrant in a time when the economy was not very strong. That's right. Yeah, and we had to be careful. Because the bank, it took several years before the Federal Reserve would let us out from under the cease and desist order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time of not just helping the community grow, you and your wife were also very involved in the side of the community of giving back to the community as well. What spurred you to have a desire to, to give back to the community? The, the better the community does, the better the bank does. Mm -hmm. And one of the neat things that uh, uh, when we were first here in the first year, Lower Valley Power decided to build new offices south of town. And their main office was right next to the bank on the square. And they had a, a, a garage over near Snow King. Mm -hmm. They put them both up for sale. And uh, I felt it was very critical that we own that property next to the bank on the corner, which was Lower Valley. And <clears throat> so we bought that. I had the whole, my holding company bought it. I didn't have the cash, but the holding company could, but and to, just to protect our interests. That sat there. I had many people come to me, wanted to do uh, Black Hills gold jewelry, wanted to do uh, donuts out the side door, coffee and donuts. and. I say, no, no, no. Maggie and I saw Bill and Jaffa Kerr's wildlife collection in Denver uh, just before we moved up here. And it's fabulous. And we were so impressed. And we didn't know the Kerr's at that time. So we move up here and we have this building suddenly that we've acquired. And Cody Museum, the Buffalo Bill, mm -hmm comes over and is talking to me, they'd like to find a satellite location here in Jackson to open a museum. Uh, about the same time, I got word that uh, the Kerrs would like to move their collection from Oklahoma to Jackson Hole, because they had moved up here. And Maggie and I talked about it. So we got a hold of the Kerrs and we said, we'll give you this corner location if you'll move your collection up here. And uh, we had a long talk with them. We gave it to them for five years for no rent. You pay the insurance and the taxes and and uh, and any reconstruction you want to do to it. And, and, and it's yours for five years. And so that's how the museum got started here. The National Museum of Wildlife, Wildlife Art. Art. Okay. Yes. 
And at the end of five years, they had such a group following and people loving it that they decided to build on this land north of town a mile north that the Kurs had bought. So we gave them another two years on the uh, uh, use of the building. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, I've given this to you for five years for free. I really need something for my shareholders. So Bill Kerr turned to the, uh, his director and said, well, you work it out with Dick. And, uh, and I said, well, do you tell me what you feel you can afford to Dan, the, the curator? Dan writes me a letter and says, we could afford, I think it was $1,500 a month, twelve or 1500 a month. I really didn't care what it was. Just pay me something. Uh-huh. <laughs> he wrote, writes me the letter. I scribble across it, accepted, signed it, dated, and sent it back to him. And so for the next several years, they paid me that a month to pay the holding company mm-hmm. for the use of that building. So they had it for about seven years. What a great beginning of yeah. something, the National Museum of Wildlife Art, which is such an icon here in yeah. the Valley. So yeah. thank you for seeing the vision to yeah. uh, bring something like that yeah. here. My kids love going to the museum. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. It's fabulous. It is fabulous. Yeah. It's people such as yourself and Maggie who see the importance of giving back to the community. And, yeah. and that's why we have the community that we have. That's because right. you saw that the success of the bank was the mm-hmm. success of the community. Mm-hmm. And they're so intertwined. And we would not have the community that we have today without somebody such as yourself and your wife Maggie and well, it took a lot of people everybody came together it's it's an amazing community and uh, you know we've jumped on ideas that other people have come up with that we thought were great things to support it's a creative marvelous community we have here it is a marvelous community that's why I love being here so much yeah. when I moved from the small town in Brookhaven Mississippi to and then over time landed here in Jackson, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I just knew that there were similarities and it was a place that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a story about during the Depression, um, there was the local bank, the Brookhaven Bank. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather's hardware store was right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And the Depression was about to put the bank out of business. Mm-hmm. And there were about five or six businessmen that came together. And my great-grandfather was one of those men. Mm-hmm. And they got together with the uh, president of the bank and said, we will not let you fail. Yeah, And they, they held that bank up. Yeah. And it's those little stories and things that keep yeah. communities together and the vibrancy and yeah. the lifeblood of, of a community. You know, I should tell you, Maggie took the, uh, she's one of the early presidents of the Wildlife Museum, but she took it on herself and with, with the Kurs uh, in concurrence with them and everything. But uh, under her leadership, she got the designation of the museum designated through Washington with our senators back there and uh, our congresswoman. The designation, it's, it's called the National Museum of Wildlife Art. And then the tag is National Museum of Wildlife Art of the American West. I think that's, I think that's the correct title. And she got that tag it's the, that it's the National Museum of the Wildlife Art. And that's a terrific designation to have. It really is. You don't see that tag all, all the time, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, they are the National Museum for Wildlife Art of the United States. 
So, Dick, through your years of operating not just the Jackson State Bank, but all the other banks Mm -hmm. that you had under your management, what allowed you or propelled you to be successful day in and day out that people could take a little bit from your success? What helped you do that every day? I I just love dealing with people and seeing people succeed, not only your customers, but your employees. All life is is people dealing with people. And I used to preach that. And it was also about the big C, which is communications. Communications is something we need to work on at home, at the office, and uh, in the community. And, and that's, uh, that's so important. The attitude of treat people like you want to be treated. When, they, when you come in our bank, treat them like you want to be treated when you arrive. Indeed. At the liquor store, we have the philosophy that this is our home. Treat people just yeah. the same way as you would treat somebody walking into your home with, this, with the same graciousness yes. and yeah. hospitality. Yeah. And it goes so far. That's right. It goes forever and ever. I had a deal that once in a while, somebody would come in the bank and be really upset with the bank. Uh, and they, wanted, they were demanding to see the president. And I'd learn about it. I'd say, oh, well, bring them up. And, uh, you know, first off, the staff's trying to shield me from anything. <laughs> and I'd say, don't shield me. Bring them up. I don't care who it is. People would come in and uh, first off, they'd be stunned that they could get in to see me because they'd be standing in the lobby Mm -hmm. screaming for the bank. (laughs) And it was usually because we charged them uh, an overdraft charge for a short check or returned their check because the deposit hadn't been made by three o'clock the day before. Mm -hmm. And they would come in and be, uh, and and, uh, it was important to me that anybody could have access to me unless I was in a conference or something. but And I met with numerous people, and uh, I'd say, now, thank you for coming in, and that would disarm them. Tell me what's, what's the problem. And they would tell me, and I'd say, you know, I'd be unhappy too. And they'd almost look at me like, you mean it? I'd say, sure. And I, maybe I was refunding a, a 15 or a $20 service charge or a $40 service charge, which was nothing to the bank. But it was big to the working man and woman. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, we're going to refund it. And this is, I'd explain how it happened, but we're going to refund their charge anyhow. Later, I'd be walking down the street in the summer, and I'd pass somebody, and they'd say, hi, Dick. And Maggie said, who is that? I'd say, it's one of my friends from the <laughs> bank. I have more friends that felt they could call me Dick, which made me happy. It's all about treating people how you want to be treated. You said it right mm-hmm. there. Indeed. You and Maggie also wrote a book about um, the his- some of the history of Jackson Hole and the history of the Jackson State Bank called Sage Brush to Silver Dollars. And in the show notes, the, you, there will be a link on Amazon where people can go and purchase this mm-hmm. book. Um, what are some small tidbits that people can find in that book? Well, first off, let me tell you that we feel so uh, lucky to have been given the opportunity to come to Jackson Hole. And the Jackson State Bank has a fabulous history, and it's over 100 years old. 
and we didn't want this great history to be lost. And so we got a hold of Charlie Craighead, who helped us write the book, and uh, we wanted to preserve the history of the Jackson State Bank and the Shoshone First Bank of Cody, because those two banks were two of the oldest banks in the state, and the history would be lost forever unless we did this. And we paid to have these two books written, and we donated the books to the Jackson Hole Historical Center. Hopefully they're still putting them for sale with Steve Ashley at the Valley Bookstore, and they're for sale at the museum. The price in them was stuck in there by the publisher, $30 on the cover, so that's what the price is. But all the proceeds go to the the Jackson Hole Historical Center. Oh, spectacular. And the Cody book goes to the Cody Historical Museum and the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. All right. And they keep all the money. Our satisfaction is that we've tried to our best to record the history of all the names of the people that have made Jackson Hole and the bank and the community what it is today. Well, I will be for certain to put the links in for the Jackson Hole Historical Society, yeah. the um, Valley Bookstore, yeah. and so other ways that people can buy that book locally because supporting be the local retailers is always the best way to support yeah. a business. And that's what you saw for so many years at Jackson State Bank. It's the community that supports the bank, but vice versa, it's the bank that helps build the community. That's right. And it's the vibrancy. And that's why I'm doing the Jackson Hole Connection, is to bring back a little bit of visiting and bring back some community connection so people can see that how making some local purchases and doing commerce with each other brings a certain level of vibrancy to each person's community. Dick, this has been spectacular. I've learned so much from you today and have enjoyed thoroughly visiting with you. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Well, Stefan, thank you. And uh, it's been a great run. This is a terrific community and it just keeps getting better. Thank you. Yes, sir. Have a great day. Thanks. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft-serve ice cream and a six-pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I am always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone worthy, please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast. Five stars, of course. I only take five stars. The Jackson Hole Connection, sharing caring stories of worldly, wild folks with a desire to share the fun side of life. You tag it, someone will bag it. Y'all come back again, you hear?